Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome to Face to Face. This is a show about change and about what's next. It's a show that wants to ask questions, peel back the layers of our average everyday experience, and go beyond scratching the surface. We interview amazing people with incredible ideas and stories who have done wild, weird, and wonderful things. Remember that imagination shared create collaboration, and collaboration creates community, and community inspires social change. I'm David Peck, and this is Face to Face. My next conversation was an absolute delight. It's with Esther Mead. She's a professor of philosophy. She's a teacher. She's a thinker. She's a writer. She's the author of uh, many books, A Little Manual for Knowing, Longing to Know, with the subtitle, The Philosophy of Knowledge for Ordinary People. I know it kind of sounds maybe dull and uninteresting, and it's anything but. We have an absolutely delightful time. She's going to tell you why she's intoxicated by this idea of thinking about knowing and how her life used to be kind of plagued by skepticism and fear and here's a here's a phrase for you how is it that you can wear your epistemology how is that even possible well esther's going to talk a little bit about that she's going to talk about why ordinary knowing is actually pretty magical not only for her but she believes for everybody uh pretty much everybody out there you know beyond beyond our listeners here on Face to Face. She talks about scientific discovery and master and apprenticeship relationships and why artists are not misfits. There's a little bit of everything for everyone here in this interview. You're going to enjoy it a great deal. Esther Meek, uh, a little manual for knowing. Check it out. Loving to know, longing to know, two other books by her. Check out davidpecklive.com for a few more interviews that you may have missed along the way or rabble.ca. Buckle up. Esther Meek. Well, welcome to Face to Face. We are joined by, once again, another very special guest today. I'm going to call her Professor. Professor Meek uh, is here today. Uh, Esther, thank you so much for joining us. Mm, It is wonderful to connect with you again, David, and and in this... um venue i'm looking forward to what happens. yes yes this digital dialogue yes yeah it, you know it's it's kind of virtual face to face it is sort of virtual face to face and i apologize for that where are you right now are you in texas no i'm in uh beaver falls in oh, pennsylvania in okay. um the cutest little office ever okay and, cool uh, so yeah that's where i am surrounded by books no doubt um uh, Esther is professor of philosophy at Geneva College. She's the visiting professor of apologetics at Redeemer Seminary. And she's also, and we're going to talk a little bit more about this, I think, uh, Fujimura Institute 
fellow, which is sounds very uh, lofty to me, uh, yeah, Esther. I'm so a guy. Yeah, so you're going to have to unpack that for us a little bit as well <laughs> as we go on. So your website describes you as a teacher, a speaker, and a conversationalist, and that you like to think about how we know. So, mm, yeah. uh, which you know, for for the philosophers out there, that's you know epistemology. Um, the, the, the study of knowledge. So it sounds pretty dull to me. Sounds, sounds pretty boring to me. Tell me why that's worth teaching about and talking about. Well, um, it sounds intoxicating to me. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Um, and I, you know, even if it didn't, I, uh, I am intoxicated by it. I mean, I can't help myself. I, I, hmm. I just love to think about knowing and, and, uh, it started in my childhood with a whole lot of uh, desperation and um, uh, skeptical uh, uh, fear, I guess. <laughs> and uh, so that's really what got me into it. I, you know, I was one desperate person to think hmm. about how knowing works. It was very existential. Hmm. And I now it's you know just turned into more of you know it's an adventure, and um, I. You know, I've learned some things along the way that I think can take everybody's uh, knowing skepticism and fears and turn it into adventure, and I like to do that. So typically most people, when they think of philosophy, when they think of philosophers, and, you know, having spent a fair bit of time in, in the discipline myself, I, I hear this all the time. In fact, uh, you know, one of my former doctors, or still a doctor that I have, said to me years ago when she found out I was studying philosophy, her line was, <laughs> well, that in a quarter will get you a phone call. And I just, and I remember, you know, I kind of, I kind of chuckled and, oh, isn't that quaint and so on. And I thought, um, and of course, it's no longer meaningful. I think it's 50 cents today to make a phone call. And who uses a payphone anyway? But, right, right. but still, uh, the, the immediate sort of disregard for the life that I had chosen academically yeah. was, oh, you philosophers, man, what are you talking? You, I mean, you're all in your heads. You're too analytic. You, you, mm -hmm. you, you think too much, David. You know, you, I, I've got that from, you know, would you quit over analyzing things, <laughs> which is, which, which I love to hear. Right. Um, mm. so tell me, I mean, you don't, I don't, I don't get that sense from you. I, I mean, I, you know, clearly you're, you're intoxicated. You're, you're passionate about this. Tell me, mm -hmm. you know, in the, the title of your, uh, one of your books, longing to know the subtitle yeah. is the philosophy mm. of knowledge for ordinary people. I mean, it's, yeah. uh, That's and then you've come lot. out a, with a, with a recent one, which I highly recommend to, to our listeners. Um, by Esther recently uh, called A Little Manual for Knowing, uh, which is about, what is it, 100 pages? 102 yeah. pages, which is a lovely length and, and a beautiful book about, uh, about the philosophy of knowing. So, so tell me... And if, and if yeah. that had a subtitle, it would be a how-to for knowing ventures in any discipline. Mm. So it's, it's uh, structured that way to um, be amenable to, I don't know, your counseling, golf game, right? Uh, mission trip, uh, freshman orientation, uh, business venture, you know, all, all of the above. So that's the hope. That's so the you're a philosopher who you're a philosopher who doesn't live in her mind. I try to be bodied, and I think um, you know, at the heart of my epistemology is well. I've tried to work out an epistemology that is pretty undeniable because we can't help but do it because it's human. Mm. And um, actually, one of the reasons that people turn their nose up and think that philosophy has no value 
is because they too have bought into a defective approach to knowing. Right. And right. so we tend to to read a thoughtful person as cerebral and and disembodied and that sort of a thing. So so um, you know it's it, it's it can be the philosophical guild that's like that, but it can be doctors and scientists and that sort of thing. And quite honestly, I think to the extent that they that's what they think they're doing they're um, not able to see what they're really doing and what they're really doing that makes them good at what they do. So I, I try to um, get at uh, helping people see what it is that they're doing right and accredit the things that they haven't been permitted by the modern culture of ideas and thoughts to, thought to accredit. So, and as you know, uh, from our our former contacts, at the at the heart of my epistemology is some proposals by scientist turned philosopher Michael Polanyi. So, um, he, that his his little uh, insights are are huge um, for unpacking and for healing our uh, our epistemology, both of what we think we're doing and what we're actually doing. So for my listeners, we, we interviewed uh, uh, Father Martin Moleski, who is, was yeah. a co-writer of a pretty significant biography about Michael Polanyi's work and his writing and his, his, his history. And so I recommend that to people as well. And so, but, well, so what's interesting about Polanyi is that he was this scientist, so deeply embedded in a particular way of seeing, in a particular way of knowing, and he has kind of this epiphany and moves into the world of philosophy to say, hang on a second here, this isn't really the way we know. Isn't that kind of, I mean, that's a real short, simple paraphrase, but isn't that essentially what what happened? Well, I would say the epiphany was uh, actually the opposite. He knew what how knowing worked, and what he figured out was that Western culture did not. <laughs> right, nice. Yeah. So, and, you know, he said if, if you know, the Western tradition of, of, uh, of, of thought is right about how knowing works. No scientific discovery could ever happen. But it does. Ergo. Yes. <laughs> we need to reinvent our epistemology uh, to go with what scientists are actually doing. So what was the, what was the, I mean, he was, he, he got a lot of pushback, right? I mean, this was not something that was, and continues to get pushback, I would think, within the academy. Yeah, uh, yeah, and I would think more so dismissal. Dismissal. Then pushback. I mean, just uh, it, he was not heard. And and um, although at the same time there were key people that he influenced, and, and uh, we Polani buddies sit around and say, well, how come more people don't know about Polani then if he influenced such key people? Um, and my hypothesis on that is because his philosophy is so personally liberating that you think it's all about you. Right. <laughs> so, um, so you know, the Polani Society has a, you know, maintains this kind of hurt <laughs> uh, uh, agenda to, to f- continue to foreground his name because we think his insights really, really, really need to not get lost. And uh, part of the, the, the folks who have adapted him have gone on to do their own really wonderful work, um, but I think that the kind of the core insight often gets left behind. Mm. And uh, though I, too, have gone on to do things beyond what Polanyi said, and in fact, Polanyi argued as part of his epistemology that, uh, you know, in the master-apprentice relationship, 
that should happen, so that the apprentice should should eventually come up with things that would surprise the master. So right. he was quite affirming of that. But but uh, I insist that if you stop talking about his key insights, um, you 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 lose the power of whatever your insights are because, and here's why I think it's important. I think we've all inherited this default modernist presumption about what knowing is because we don't particularly do epistemology. We don't even recognize it. We just have some kind of no brainers about what we think knowing is. And that default, I think is in need, it's defective and it's, it's in need of, uh, therapy and reorientation, and um, if you don't see that, you can't reorient. And so, so that's kind of why he was dismissed, because the people were hearing him from a modernist approach mm-hmm. to knowledge, and on from starting from that point, what he was saying was subjectivism. So how do you get people out of this? This so I want to I want to hear about the key insight that you think is often looked uh, overlooked, the core insight. Um, I, I, we need to talk a little bit about this modernist presumption because that just sounds, you know, once again, kind of academic and so on that yeah. we've, that we've yep, inherited. Yep, yep. But how do you, if, if so if, you know, once you give us that, if you wouldn't mind commenting on how do people get outside of that then? You know, yep, how do yep, you get yep. outside of your framework? How do you, how do you, how do you get beyond your self-referential incoherence? You know, it's, it's not easy to do. Well, and I would say the two things you asked me to do and I hope to do really lie at the core of the therapy that needs to happen. Mm. I love the, so, I, Esther, I love the fact that you're using the word therapy. I mean, it's just so, <laughs> well, well, for one thing is there's a lot of potential comedy routines we could have around that, you know, but, but, but there's also, there's a deeply relational component to this to, yep. to, to, that I love, right? That, that Well, and also bodied, because here's mm, the thing. You, mm. It's kind of like you wear your epistemology, and you know how it is when you're wearing something. Somebody else needs to tell you whether it goes. Yeah, true. <laughs> right? So um, you can't, you know, if you've got a defective epistemology, you can't write an epistemology textbook to correct that. Mm. <laughs> right. So, so... Um, and I, I love always, always my, you know, the first people I like to talk to are, are like human beings that think they're just ordinary knowers. And I, I, I don't, I re, I remove the word just because I think ordinary knowing is pretty magical. Mm. Um, but so I like to find ways to help people that don't think of themselves as philosophers realize what, what they're doing and, um, kind of correct that. So, so my little diagnostic uh, to help people, well, before I say that, let me say, I argue that if you're born into the Western modernist tradition, so something in the West post-Descartes, post-Enlightenment, I think in the water is this presumption about what knowing is. I think modernism, uh, you know, however we use the term, mm-hmm. one core thing that it is, if not the core thing, is, a, is an epistemology. And what it says is that knowledge is certain facts and information. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, most people don't even realize that that, you know, if you ask them, well, what is knowledge? Uh, it wouldn't even occur to them to say that. They'd say, well, you know, what we do in that class, that's knowledge, or what we do in that class, but, but it doesn't they don't even think to identify that that they're associ- that most people associate knowledge with information and facts and data. 
and because it seems so obvious to right. them. That's right. because we're born into modernity. So um, the the presumption that we inherit is that. So we're very um, fragmented about it. We see it as, you know, tidbits. We, we privilege analysis because it mm-hmm. breaks mm-hmm. things down into bits. And we think, well, obviously that's getting closer to things if you can break it down sure. to bits. And then, you know, if you've got bits, then you can manage them, and it gives you – uh, you know, control and power. And modernism is very much about, you know, breaking it down into bits so sure. we can control them and, and have mastery over nature and all of that. So so there's, you know, definitely a, a power angle there. But but um, uh, I I go on to say, you know, embedded in that presumption about knowing, we, we have all these things we think knowledge is and knowledge is not. And so I developed this little... A thing called Esther's Daisy of Dichotomies, <laughs> <laughs> and so you know you put it up on a on a board or you know draw it on a piece of paper, and you say to people, well, you know what do most people, you know, think that um, is the opposite of knowledge? You know, so well, something's either knowledge or it's belief, um, or uh, some you know uh, knowledge is associated with facts. Well, facts are opposed to values. So if, as you go through the dichotomies, if you put the first member of the binary in the, in the center of the daisy, right, uh, and they all link up in the center of the daisy, and put the second member out on the petal, and they don't link up, up necessarily. So we think that knowledge is opposed to belief, and it's, it's connected to facts, which is opposed to value. You see here what I'm doing? I think so, yeah. Okay, good. And so then we uh, superimpose on that science. So science and facts and knowledge are kind of the same thing, and science we oppose to art. Um, we can uh, superimpose on that center. Um, you know, so we've got knowledge and science. In fact, we can add on reason. And, and uh, we think of reason, obviously, as opposed to faith. Um, we also think of reason as obviously opposed to emotion. And, you know, for this to be working as a diagnostic, all I'm doing is helping people get in touch right. with the presumptions that most people hold about knowing that I want to say is a modernist epistemology, and most people don't even think to examine. Yeah, sure. Right? So, I, you know, it may not be that you're kind of, uh, that all of these are true to you personally, for you to start to feel that this is kind of a common way that the modern West thinks. So, so, so I and mean, then you know, you moving down that you can put mind in the middle, body on the yeah, outside. Sure. You can put theory in the middle and application on the outside. You can put, uh, let's see, what a public in the middle, private on the outside, objective in the middle, subjective on the outside. You can put male in the middle and female on the outside, and you can put white in the middle and black on the outside. So, so I've been I've been in this for a few years, been reading about it. I, I I'm comfortable with the language and so on. What about? You know, what about for the single mother who, who has two kids, who's scrambling to make ends meet and so on? How does something, I mean, you, you throw out a phrase like, well, moder- modernism's an epistemology, don't you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, all of a sudden you've lost, you know, 60% of your room, <laughs> if, <laughs> if, not, if not maybe more. So, you know, if you're speaking to an audience, 
but I don't think you would do that. I, the, the sense I get from you is you would you would speak to the room in the way that 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 Polanyi would speak to the room, if that well, makes sense. Yeah, we've only done point one of the two. That's right. That's right. Yes. 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 And that's where basically um, what you're saying, Esther, is everyone who's listening should come down to Pennsylvania and take your course. Is that what you're saying? Oh, oh I, I I don't mind gadding about. But if you want to buy me a plane ticket. I'll That's come right. See you. We'll <laughs> so, we'll set something up here. Yeah. So, uh, but in any case, um, <clears throat> you you know you have to be able to see that with that Daisy, mm-hmm. uh, that some people have said, well. Uh, yeah, that's what knowledge would be, but we don't have it. Right. Or there's some people like Mako Fujimura who says, hey, that's what knowledge is, but I'm an artist. I can't help but be an artist. And then he says, I'm a misfit. So in other words, some people say, okay, the most important for, thing for me, I can't help myself. Um, I guess I'm just going to have to concede it's on the pedal. Mm. But in doing that... You know, you continue to honor those dichotomies. Whichever side of it you come down on, you're honoring the dichotomies. Mm-hmm. And what you need to do is tear up the whole thing and start over. Right. And so then, once that point is made and people start to feel like, okay, maybe, maybe I've got a defective default, <laughs> a defective epistemic default, and it needs fixed, as we say in Pittsburgh, then you can start to say some things that go to addressing that. And that's how, that's at the point at which I bring Polanyi's subsidiary focal integration into it and talk to people about how they keep their balance on a bike. Okay, you just lost the other 40% of the room. Subsidiary focal integration. How many of your audience can keep their balance on a bike? Mm -hmm. It's good. Yeah, I would say probably most of them. 95%? Let's settle for 95%. That's a whole lot of people that can ride a bike. Yep. And a whole lot of people that can drive a car, right? And that single mom is doing every one of those things really, really well. Right. So let's look at how we do that and see uh, what's going on. And when you attend to what you're actually doing, it torpedoes that daisy of dichotomies. Which, so are you ready? <laughs> yeah, no, it's good. It's so good. So basically what you're talking about is this 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 integrated whole. And you're talking about that with respect to pretty much everything we do that makes us human. Yeah. When you see the thing is and and Polanyi realized this. What makes a scientist good as a discoverer is not the scientific method. But when the scientist self-describes, because the only kind of epistemology that's available to him is modernist, he, uses, he or she uses the scientific method to describe what they're doing. And quite honestly, that's kind of why I'm not a scientist, because when I was in 11th grade in chemistry, I thought to myself, Okay, scientific method, you know, you're supposed to do other than that. There's that one step where you're supposed to generate tentative hypotheses. And to me, that seemed like the stuff of miracles. And I thought, I could never do that. How can I ever do a science project? I can't generate a tentative hypothesis. Mm. And so there, right in the heart of the scientific method, is this thing that is not method and it's not linear. And that's the thing that if you're going to be a great scientific discoverer, you have to do. 
And Polanyi understood that because he was one. So you're saying there is, so in a sense, if this is a fair question, and maybe it's not, but you're saying that the, frame, the current framework, the framework we've been using for hundreds of years of how we know uh, in, in the scientific uh, laboratory, in the classroom, and so on, <laughs> um, is, is, is it doesn't actually... So in other words, you say you can't generate, a, I'm just trying to formulate this in a way that makes sense, but that you, you're using things that the framework doesn't allow for when you're yep. generating those tentative hypotheses. Which means the framework does not accredit Which is so beautiful, right? things that are going to make you do your work better. So right, uh, my, right. my pitch to ordinary knowers is I can help you be better at knowing, whether it's entrepreneurial mm -hmm. or... Uh, scholarly or scientific and uh, again uh, you know n there's no disgrace to information but hmm. wherever information is honored <laughs> it's honored because of the more that it points to right and and so w what the right thing to do with the information is is not focus on it <laughs> right <laughs> just like and if we can talk about bike riding, if you fixate on keeping your balance, you will not be successful. <laughs> right, right. Down, down you, you go. Yeah, fall down off. you go. Yeah. So right. how? So 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 Esther, if you don't mind, can we can we kind of um, how does how does this make a a board member a better chairperson? How does it? How does knowing these? How does an ordinary knower benefit from this kind of an understanding? Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, the leader of a of a bank, the 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 manager on a construction project, and so on. Yeah. Well, if you will indulge me, may I? Yeah, try please. To sketch out very briefly subsidiary focal integration. Yeah, please. Because I really, you know, I feel like I can't not say that because I really feel like it's the key. Well, when you when you explain it by saying, you know, how many of your listeners ride a bike, okay, all of a sudden it's like, okay, this is <laughs> clearly yeah. pretty, pretty practical. Okay, so ready to go? Yeah, go. All right. On your mark. So, um, first thing to say is, Polanyi said, all-knowing has a two-level structure. And that structure is from two. <laughs> So you're relying on some things to focus on some others, and mm -hmm. it's all connected in one knowing act. Mm -hmm. And you never get beyond that two-level structure. What's more, if you did, you it, you it would, you know, it just, you don't. You don't want to. What you want to do is be better at it. Mm -hmm. But don't ever, part of what you need to do is accredit the things that you're relying on and do it well. Right. So when you think about bike riding, if you think about the painful moment when you first tried it, <laughs> the reason it was painful was that you were focused on the bike, on the the impossibility of it. Did I say I was a skeptic? So balancing <laughs> yes, up yes, just yes, seemed like an epistemological impossibility to me. And my body felt entirely not my own. It felt opaque and useless. And my father's uh, directives, which, you know, his idea was to put me at the top of a grassy hill and push me and yell, balance! 
Jesus. <laughs> right, right. And I and here, you know, baby philosophers saying, what does it mean to balance, and how is that going to possibly yes. help me yes. in this situation? And his idea was that by I got by the time I get to the end of the hill, I'd figure it out. So eventually, we do figure out how to keep our balance on the bike, but it only happens when we switch from fixating on mm. or focusing on the information of the bike and the world mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. the authoritative guide and the body and kind of focus from it to the farther pattern of riding the bike. And once you get the feeling, oh, I get it, then you're, you've developed a felt body sense of keeping your balance that's absolutely essential to the whole proceeding. But, and this is Polanyi's key insight, it's subsidiary, mm. not focal. Subsidiary meaning what? Means you're uh, relying on it, you're indwelling it. It does not mean subconscious. It doesn't mean automatic. Because, but you're subsidiarily attuned to it uh, to as part of the performance to f- to um, move from that toward the pattern. So There's another, no way you can learn to ride a bike by memorizing the physics formula. Right. So, so in other words, you're you're sort of relying on a certain amount of, of particulars or clues or or bits of business that allow you to ride the bike. But you don't yeah. want to focus on those because if you do that, you're never really going to learn how to ride the bike. You're going to have all the mechanics of it, but you're not going to focus on the actual bike riding itself. Yeah, and your well, and your body effectively, you wouldn't have the mechanics of it. There's no way you can have the mechanics of it. So, so what Polanyi is saying is for there to be understanding, you actually have to stop focusing on the information. Nice. So an epistemology that ensconces information as the paradigm is the very thing that inhibits knowing. Hmm. No wonder we've got problems, right? If you ride a bike like a modernist, you don't ride a bike. Right. Does that make sense? I I'm think not so. yelling at you, David. I'm no, sorry. No, <laughs> that's why I went silent, actually, Esther. I thought you were yelling at me. Um, <laughs> so, so okay, so this is great. So this is great for kids learning how to ride bikes, but yep. I don't know. How does it make our new prime minister a, a better person? <laughs> oh, I mean, you want you want to um, have somebody as, you know, your... your uh, Business president, uh, you're a prime minister. You want somebody that's got. We call it know-how. We call it wisdom. Mm-hmm. You know, we mm-hmm. we we um, we want people that feel <laughs> the. It's almost like they bodily feel or indwell all the parameters that it takes to get the job done. Mm. And that's why you can't. Um, it's hard to replace a business president, for example. Because you can't just hand somebody the technical manual and bang there a business president. Right. So um, here in, in um, Pittsburgh, we, we root for the Steelers. You might know this. And um, that's a, the football team here. And um, Ben Roth. Uh, we we Canadians is, know nothing about you Americans, just so you know. I just yeah, want, to yeah, be, I I want to be clear about that, Esther. And, and, of course, we Americans think that's true. <laughs> but, <laughs> but Ben Roethlisberger is really quite an amazing quarterback to watch. And so I say to my students here, here's what focal knowledge would be or what the, the defective understanding of knowledge would be. 
that would be Ben Roethlisberger standing on the 50-yard line holding the playbook. Hmm. But that is not what we pay him to do. And it's not what he's good at doing. What he does is he has so subsidiarily indwelled the playbook, and he's so subsidiarily indwelled the, the field, he's looking from the field, in other words, the, the, you know, the, the, uh, the, the opponents, his O-line, his backs, all of that, he's doing that subsidiarily to focus on the uh, as-yet-to-be-actualized pattern of passing for a touchdown. And he's really, really, really good at it. But it's always innovative. So you and anybody knows this. You've got to have the information so in you mm-hmm. that you can creatively innovate from it. So for a chemist, the chart of the periodic table of elements on the wall is not knowledge. Right. Just like picking up a hammer. You know, it only becomes a hammer when you're using it. Right. So it's when you indwell it that the world opens to you in so many, you know, elements or, or the roof and, you know, so many shingles or, or that sort of thing. When, when you master bike riding, the world comes to you in bike paths, but not before. So what that is is a relating to whatever it is in a subsidiary way to focus on a farther pattern, and that becomes this dynamo of, of – um, you know, it embeds you in the world. When you're Ben Roethlisberger, there isn't much you can't do with a football, mm-hmm. right? And and there's all kinds of possibilities that open up. And and that's what makes knowing intoxicating because it launches you out into the world, and the world is full of possibilities. That's how you know you've made contact with reality. Isn't you, that cool? It's very cool. <laughs> I'm intoxicated as well, and it's only 10 35 a.m. <laughs> um, I'm going to read a little quote here from uh, a little manual for knowing by by um, uh, uh, Cascade Books uh, came out in 2014. Check it out. Quote, philosophy accompanies the trajectory of our growing to understand what it means to be human. A trajectory mm-hmm. from wonder to wisdom that never mm-hmm. leaves the wonder behind. Close quote. Mm-hmm. So, appeals to me for so many reasons. I'm a, uh, I've got an eight and 10 year old. I'm a magician. I love the whole mm-hmm. idea of fooling people, that mystery, the Good wonder. Magician. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> That's how I first met. That's you. thank you. And, and as a philosopher, all philosophy begins in wonder. So, so can you, can you talk a little bit about that and maybe connect it to this idea of, of, of understanding and wisdom for ordinary people? Okay. I'll try if I can uh, connect it by connecting back to the whole, um, modernist epistemology that I keep saying boo about. Uh, <laughs> if, right. if you go back to Francis Bacon, who's kind of a father of, of the modernist approach, um, he wanted us to, to uh, and Descartes too, they, they reinvented knowing for the sake of human mastery of nature, and they basically said wonder's a bad thing. So mm. in other words, we want complete control. And for you to have complete control, you've got to excise wonder. Right. So that's really why modernity has kind of a whole lot of wreckage in its wake. You know, it's dehumanizing, it's, you know, atheistic, it, you know, all these things. It's, it's not healthy. It's not healthy. Whereas, you know, when you look at humanness, if you just think about, you know, every one of us, you know, contrast every one of us with our dog, 
You know, dogs don't get up in the morning and say, what does it mean to be a dog? Right. But humans do. And and it's not like I doubt that I'm a human, but it, there's this incredible wonder about humanness that mm. would never be exhausted, even though, uh, let's see, for me now, uh, 24 semesters of papers of students writing papers on humanness, <laughs> right? You might think might exhaust that, but it right, doesn't. Right, right, right. <laughs> you know, it doesn't. And so it's almost as if I, I say to my students, we... To be human is to live the questions of mm-hmm. philosophy. I tell them there's one thing you have to do to be a philosopher, and that's be born. Because to, to be human is to wonder, and to wonder is to ask, how is it that I can know anything at all? And it's not like the skeptical question is, it's that this is a thing of wonder, that I can actually you know, understand calculus, mm-hmm. not that I do personally, but mm-hmm. do you see what I'm saying? That's mm-hmm. a thing of wonder, and that should be celebrated, and it's exactly the teacher who celebrates the wonder of it that you want to have teach you. Mm-hmm. So I tell my students to look for the teacher with a twinkle in their eye. <laughs> nice. About the subject and about you. <laughs> right. Uh, tell, t- what, so, Esther, are we, I mean, it seems to me, that we human beings love the polarization of the issue. We love the polarization of the other, of the ethic, of the faith, of the knowledge, whatever it is. We love plus and minus. We love up and down, black and white. Mm-hmm. Is that because of the framework? Is that because of this, this, this breakdown? Uh, can we blame Bacon and Descartes for this? Is this, is the, or, or is it more, I don't know. Is it deeper than that? Is it social? Is it cultural? Is it is mm-hmm. it is it religious? Is it is it deeply embedded in you know you know that I I don't like yeah. the phrase it's in our DNA I never have, mm-hmm. but is it uh, is it almost something you know that's kind of a part of who we are and and how we're mm-hmm. wired? Yeah, I I would say something like the DNA line. There's there's a um, uh, as humans we're we are you know we've got a. A, a good side, and then we tend to bend it. Mm. And uh, you know what we were originally created to be got warped. And so, um, you know, we weren't meant to be fearful. <laughs> we're fearful. I mean, sometimes it's good to be to be mm-hmm. fearful, but mm-hmm. then there's things that we're fearful of that we shouldn't be fearful of. Right. So we, right. we we all know that dynamic. And I would say, um, you know, youth. And so, and I'm, I might say immaturity uh, inclines us to be black and white thinkers. Hmm. And, and part of wisdom, <clears throat> as anybody would know, would be no longer being black and white thinkers. Right. But, but what I think modernist epistemology has done has been to privilege black and white thinking and, and discredit the other stuff. And discredit by saying it's not knowledge, it's subjectivist. That's why it's that Polanyi was too three-dimensional. Right, right. And, and because he didn't fit the mold, he was taken to be, you know, subjectivist. And it wasn't that at all. Reality's bigger. Well, I think it's interesting. what the modernists think, not less. It's, it's interesting that the, the, the academy didn't just find him irrelevant. They, they just dismissed him. 
as you mm -hmm. said earlier. I think that's a pretty interesting comment. So does this make me, this kind of a, an approach, this kind of an understanding, this kind of an epistemology, as you say, or as a philosopher as a, might say, does it make me more open to others? Does it, does, it, yeah. does it possibly create more of a humble space where I'm yeah. able to, to listen to others? So, so here, here I'm the development <laughs> guy going now, okay, so how does this affect my international development students that are going you know, into Bangladesh or into Burkina Faso or yeah. into Cambodia? How is that going to affect them? Yeah, I feel that implicit, and this is, my, this is kind of more my own Polani story, but I feel that implicit in Polanyi's approach is a regard for the other. Mm. And um, such that if you're going to come to know it, you need to listen to it. Mm. And, and see, uh, you know, if you think of a modernist epistemology, even if, they, if somebody in, in uh, you know, wise ways understood that they should listen, what you'd be listening for is passive collecting of, of information, <laughs> right, right. which there's no other in that at all because it depersonalizes reality. Mm -hmm. So uh, in, in Polanyi's work, here, here was the sentence that just uh, intoxicated me and still does. And, 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 you know, if you figure I was a good little skeptic, Cartesian girl for no fault of my own. <laughs> Nobody ever told me this stuff. But I just presumed, oh gosh, I presumed Descartes. But in any case, you know, I distrusted re that reality was there. You know, I, I would know I was having ideas of you, David, uh, but that, for, for precisely that reason, those ideas stood in the way of me connecting with reality. And so I longed for reality. What I longed to know actually was knowing <laughs> mm. that, 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 I could, that I was connected with the world. Well, so Polanyi, the scientific discoverer, said, well, how do you know you've made contact with reality? Well, you can imagine that my ears more than perked up at that point. I started salivating. <laughs> but, then, but then he said, you know you've made contact with reality. And he's talking as a scientific discoverer. When you have a sense of the possibility of indeterminate future manifestation. So what the heck does that mean? Yeah. Well, future prospects that you cannot articulate. They're indeterminate. You can't even say what they are. And that's how you know that you're onto reality. It's not confirmation. It's the hope of future prospects. Mm -hmm. Later you might confirm it, but at the point you have the aha, you're relying on what you cannot name, and you need to be accredited in doing that. So you want to trust your hunches and train your hunches. And, and when reality walks in, see, it doesn't like show up and answer the question you ask. What it does, if it's really real, is walk in and take over and change your question. It's mm, good. Wow. And, and that's, that's, that's how so you great. know it's, re it's real. So I love the old movie, The Hunt for Red October. Okay. I, of course, Sean Connery, when he's got hair, you know, all that kind of thing. But in any case... And Alec Baldwin, too, right? So my guess would yeah. be two guys that are not too hard to look at. Is that also probably why? Well, yeah. uh, um, uh, they don't seem comparable to me, but that's <laughs> not discussion we should be having. That's right. That's <laughs> podcast number two. Yeah. <laughs> that film, and I think the film's better than the book, but, but uh, the film is one big act of coming to know. Hmm. So... Alec, or so, uh, what's his name, the 
I can't remember the name. Is it Ryan? It's, it's Jack Ryan, well, right? Yeah. So Jack Ryan has this aha moment when he realizes that Ramius is not trying to start World War III. He's trying to defect and bring the Red October with him. Mm, mm. Well, of course everybody thinks he's crazy. Yes. But the whole movie is about figuring that out. Right. And it's scary and it's risky and, and you know, agonizing. Da, 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 da. Well, when he finally meets Ramius, what I say in Longing to Know, when he finally meets Ramius, Ryan is no longer the one asking the questions. Ramius starts interrogating him ruthlessly. And it's like reality, walk, reality walked in and took over. Right. And Ryan didn't say, got that right, check. No, he, he was compelled into very dangerous reality very quickly. So, so uh, you know, again, to say that, you know, uh, knowledge is about asking questions and getting correct answers, it's, it's um, what the problem with that is it's so two-dimensional mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and boring. Yeah, right. What you want to do is invite reality and be willing to take the risk that it will come and change your life. So good. You know, if you're a good surfer, you want the awesome wave. You want the wave that's just about out of control. You want the wave that surprises you, and that's how you know it was good. It's cool, um, Esther. I hate to do this, but we got to wrap it up. I, <laughs> it's crazy. It's gone by like so fast. I've taken more notes than I take for most of my interviews. Just so you know, uh-huh. most of my podcasts. So we're gonna have to do part two, three, and four. Um, I love it. I love it. Thank <laughs> can you. I, can I end with a quote from your book? It's so, it's so great. So this, so this is um, out of, uh, again, A Little Manual for Knowing, Esther Meek, Cascade Books, came out in 2014. Um, quote, for all of us, entering a knowing venture require at some point that we trust. Mm-hmm. We must trust others who know what we do not yet know about mm-hmm. the world, even about ourselves. Mm-hmm. We may need to trust another's love and notice and wonder. A responsible decision to trust is a centrally effective knowing practice, a posture mm-hmm. of pledge-like love. Do not mm-hmm. despise it, but rather embrace it with resolve, close quote. I mean, it, it's beautiful for so many reasons, poetic, and it's so much there we could talk about. And, and I, in a way, I kind of hate to end it there, but I hope that's enough for some of our listeners to, to pick up some of what you're your, uh, your writing, uh, check you out online, go back Thank and listen you. to the interview again. There's a lot there. So yeah, thanks so much for joining us today. I, I, I really appreciate it. And I do hope we can, we can, uh, do a part two in the near future. Great, David. Thank you. It's been really wonderful to talk to you again. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 
luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.